Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Welcome to Aging Well, a podcast where we're going to be discussing our insights, some tips, and also what we as clinicians and as people have discovered about the challenge of bringing children into our lives. And we hope that you'll find this helpful. I'm Monica Moore. I'm a GP with a special interest in mental health. And with me is my friend, Julianne White. And I'm a mental health social worker who loves to talk about and reflect on important issues in life and hopefully make a difference. Thanks, Monica. So this is the second of our uh, podcasts in this particular um, topic, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So we've talked about all the things that we've noticed and from our experience, and then we're going to share some ideas that, you know, we think some people might find helpful. Mm. And also about our interactions, you know, as clinicians and the sorts of things that present and, and you know, what, what we've noticed other clinicians, you know, our referral base can uh, provide in terms of support and help for people when they bring children into their lives. And so I was thinking, you know, as, as a, a mental health social worker, we were talking about the, the cases that, you know, have really left a, an impression on our lives. And and you were talking about how, you know, you deal with someone who is so distressed, like a mother who's had a baby, who is so distressed that she's not eating, she's not sleeping, uh, you know, what we would, as a GP, would call a psychotic depression, you know, and I really like the way, um, the sorts of things that you talked about, you know, how you would have handle it. Oh, thanks, Monica. I call them really urgent referrals. If I got a phone call, and as we did, I was telling you a case the other day of this this beautiful young mum that had, you know, we just the doctor had rung and said that this had to be an urgent referral. And we're in a small rural community, so access to psych units or mother baby units is quite limited within our local community. They're available, but not local in our, our community. And so we did take her urgently. So we got her to come over straight away, and luckily I did have some time to see her. But you could just see the panic. And what my mind as a clinician went to straight away was what might be happening at her brain level. And I just knew that I had to try and hold her distress. She was absolutely distressed. And from what I gathered from the GP was that there's some trauma history or something there in the background that, you know, hadn't been, you know, disclosed previously because she hadn't been anybody's mental health client before, obviously for physical health needs, but not mental health needs. What we did with her was just allowed her a space to de-escalate that stress. So using ourselves as um, in therapy, you know, those lovely micro skills we use. So using tone, voice and uh, tone, rhythm and volume of our voice, talking to her very gently and quietly. The receptionist, a beautiful receptionist at um, an Aberanth who just took the child for a while with permission of the mother. Of course, we didn't steal the child, although we were tempted to, who was so beautiful. But then the, so our receptionist held the baby for a bit while I just sat with the mother and gently spoke to her about where she was at and how her brain must be just so frozen. But what we actually got her involved with was a bit of Reiki. Uh, we're very blessed to have some complementary therapies in our clinic. And she was very, you know, sort of, uh, I don't know, a bit cautious because we had her baby and it wasn't about her. It was about, you know, the relationship and her coping and her mothering and she obviously felt so overwhelmed. But I explained to her that just allowing that brain to just go to unload, to just get it off autopilot, to take it down a couple of levels and just let her think quietly, just lower. So clinically, I was thinking I've got to drop that adrenaline and cortisol level down so that she can actually start problem solving and thinking. 
And the difference when she came out of her Reiki session, Monica was absolutely amazing. Luckily, her baby was really settled. He was quite calm with our staff. She came out of about a 20-minute Reiki session just in this totally different state, not able to problem solve yet, but the panic and the despair and the distress had actually just shifted a notch from being perhaps where she would have been at perhaps 80 or 90 on a, you know, we were talking the other day about subjective units of distress. If you're talking about her SUD scale of one highly, highly distressed to perhaps less distressed, she'd gone from perhaps an 80 down to a 60. And you could just see the capacity now to talk to her a bit more about how is she problem solving what was happening for her, what was the key thing that was causing the distress. Sometimes it's not the talking therapies that are always needed. Sometimes it's that validation, those micro skills, the alternative complementary therapies, a bit of Reiki or meditation, just to actually do, you know, as a clinical intervention to lower those stress responses in the brain and the body. How would you know to refer someone to what counsellor? Like counselling's like a good pair of slippers. And you've got to get the right pair of slippers. Mm, you have to have the good fit. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't know sometimes. And sometimes you refer someone and they come back and they go, no, that wasn't a good fit. So you always have to preempt that, you know, that explain to them that that's what's going to, you know, what you're trying to do. But I was thinking that, you know, that sort of wideness of referral, one of the things that I know from my training as a GP is that the physical touch of the GP can be very healing. And I never quite understood why until I realized that um, as babies, um, our development is severely curtailed if we don't get touch and how important touch is in in feeling safe and, um, and you know, in brain development. And so, um, you know, Bessel van der Kolk and his research, you know, sort of ha- d- recommends regularly that people have as part of trauma therapy, not just whatever um, flavour of, of talking therapy the therapist is doing, but also physical therapies like massage. Uh, and, and I think, that, you know, you've illustrated that really well with that case. But it's it's that thing about, you know, our trauma is embodied in our bodies, like we, we experience our distress in our bodies. And so one of the ways of decreasing that distress is through the body. And I think when, you know, we, you, know you and I were talking about this, you know, situations where someone's really distressed, they're not sleeping, they're not eating. And, um, you know, that I can remember years ago that the only option was really to admit the mother to a psychiatric unit with or without the baby, there weren't many units where the baby would be would be there, and then suddenly that baby would be instantly weaned and you know onto formula, and it was distressing, so distressing, you know, for everyone concerned. And so, um, we're very lucky in our area now to have uh, a perinatal clinician, and she would be someone who does house calls. Sorry, she does house calls, and she would be someone that you know I would highly recommend because uh, she's exactly that appropriate fit for someone in that situation and there are sometimes where people do need that support of being in a in a therapeutic environment like an admission and you know I mean I work in Sydney and so that's available but not always. But we have even in a rural community though Monica it's lovely because we've got Tresillians um, which is a wonderful um, organisation that do fantastic support and a bit like you we were talking about what resources we have readily on available and we actually have a resource I can quickly go to that we've you know put together around the referrals because this is an urgent 
you know, this is not something you put off and go, look, I can wait three weeks. This is urgent because a mother and her child or a father and a child, if they've got this stress response, it is as critical, I see it as a, a level one triage, that this needs to be responded to today immediately because the risk of harm to the baby or the risk of harm within that couple even if, you know, say one of those parents doesn't cope and then, then you know, the tone of voice changes, there's that frustration, irritability, the potential for using alternative um, means to set you know to to self-soothe like drugs or alcohol or you know the for physical or verbal attack or um, just even re- affecting the relationship is too great to put this as a as a, a you know something that can just go on the normal referral or say look that can come next week I personally feel these are having been there and in that moment re- experiencing this intense desire to I not knowing what to do and thinking that I'm responsible for the life and the happiness of this little person is critical. And I've actually been there at a point where, you know, I looked at my baby and I actually had to put him down in the cot and just walk away and think I was so tired, so frustrated, so overwhelmed. I didn't know whether I could be trusted. And so I knew I had to put him down. He was safe. He was well. He was okay. And I went out to the lounge room and I rang my husband and my mother and said, I think I need help. These people, when they come to us, I could imagine, and maybe this is a bit of transference, counter-transference, you know, I'm not quite sure, but we've we got to act now for these these really, um, you know, parents that are in this particular state. Luckily, it's not everybody, you know, that actually go into a deep depression. Yeah, and, and I think that experience of just feeling totally overwhelmed and putting the baby down and walking away and asking for help, I mean, I, I had that too. Like, it's it's one of those things, you know, that it's much commoner than what we realise. Um, it, it, but it's that if you don't have a husband and a mother who can come and, and help you out, like sometimes that adds to your distress and, and we can, as clinicians, we can support that person and normalise it and say this is a normal human reaction to have to feel so overwhelmed. How can we help? It's like two people against the problem, you know. Um, it's not a blaming, it's not a shaming. It's very much about, you know, doing that sort of multi-level listening and paying attention and asking questions and being curious and and. And I think that, you know, that thing about referrals, you know, and all those resources, I worked to create a a whole sort of network of resources, people that I, you know, if people were having problems, their child wasn't sleeping and they really were feeling overwhelmed and it was starting to affect their their physical health, their mental health and how they were relating. Um, You know, like you have various clinics that would have either day programs or um, in-house programs that they could go and stay. And recognising that, um, you know... We can have to differentiate between the the sort of the normal sort of thing and what's really ugly and what what is urgent, and that's what we as clinicians, you know, try and organise with our with our patients and clients, and to recognise that sometimes we get it wrong. Like, please accept that your clinician is a human being too, and they may not actually get the severity of the problem. So let them know, you know. Um, I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, that's kind of like post the event. Um, I'm, I'm a lot into prevention, you know, being a GP. And, and I don't, like, I, I want to get a little bit from the dark side um, into the sort of the slightly lighter side. Um, and I was wondering, like, what, what kind of things do you sort of, like, do you do any preventive work? What sort of resources? I mean, you know, with your own kids and great 
caring kids like what sort of resources do you suggest to them that they know about there's so much out there now what i'm doing with a lot of my um couples that are coming in in a variety of ages so and it's interesting that um over the uh, 16 or 18 years that i've been doing mental health work with i've noticed you know a lot of my parents that are coming first-time parents are coming in a little bit older and i've been talking a lot about the love languages five love languages that we actually have because this is a major transitional part of our lives that perhaps the way we want to show and receive love changes or we miss the mark a bit because we're so focused on this becoming a parent from being an individual. So if it's the first child from being an individual adult to now becoming a parent. So even the, even the title we have changes. We go from being Julianne to mum and we go from being adults and a couple to being parents. So not only do we change in our roles, we actually change in the titles that we have. So, so much changes. So sometimes then our, our schemas, our expectations of going from Julianne to mum. It's, it's our identity, isn't it, that changes? Yeah. Yeah, it's our identity that changes. Yeah, absolutely. Which is highly anxiety-provoking in a way. Absolutely. And I remember as much as I absolutely love my mother, and if she's listening now, I hope she knows I love her dearly, but I didn't want to be my mother when I had my children. I didn't want a mother like my mother. And I hear my daughters and my sons saying the same, oh, I don't want to be like my mother. And although you sound like your mother. And it's the worst thing my husband can ever say to me is you just sound like your mother. And I think, no, I've tried really hard not to be in the things that I wanted to be different. And I'm not saying this is an offence to, to my mother, but... You know, my mother mothered her way based on her experiences and her life's journey and her expectations of having um, children and babies. And, and I was her only daughter and, and I've got five brothers. And then so I thought, now that when I'm a mother, I want to be, I want to do it differently. And it was very different to being how I wanted to be Julianne the adult to being Julianne the mother. And I wanted to put my mark on my mothering, but I actually didn't know how to be Julianne, the mother. And then I'd do things and I'd feel like, oh, that's, I didn't want to do it that way. That's not, that's not how I want to mother. That's not how I want to parent. And that's not how I wanted to couple, you know, to do the relationship thing with David. I wanted to do it differently. Uh, and I'm finding that too with a lot of my couples that are coming in. And look, and one thing I wanted to say to Monica is often when we, there's this thing about a conflict of interest in our clinical practice. So that if you've got uh, a couple, a male and a female that have, um, you know, dealing with issues of parenting, often you'll have one clinician seeing one adult and another clinician seeing the other adult. And my experience is, has been that if we don't actually at some point get them together, they may actually be given totally different advice because they're actually going to tell the clinician what their version of the event might be and their perception and their problems, depending on the clinician's perception of it based on their experiences, they'll be giving advice. So we might actually be pushing couples in different directions if we don't actually ever get an opportunity to either as clinicians co co um, collaborate or to see them together. I don't know. It's a, that's a tricky space. How do you negotiate that space? Yeah. Do you know, it's, it, this is why I was asking you about, you know, the sorts of things that you talk to parents before they have the baby, you know, or even to people who are pregnant. And as a GP, I get this, you know, the sorts of advice that I give, like what I prioritise because there's so much information. And so I have now been prioritising communication skills because if, if the couple can communicate, if they can actually nut out and solve their problems, if they can use their love languages, which I agree with you, you know, knowing 
knowing your own love language and knowing your partner's love language is just gold, like it's brilliant. And if they can communicate and problem solve, then they can deal with all those issues of, um, you know, the best way possible, you know, of, of, of fatigue and finances and, and issues around intimacy and touch overload that the mother has, you know, where, um, you know, t- she just doesn't want anyone to touch her because, uh, you know, she's already being touched and breastfeeding and all that kind of thing throughout the day. And and those, even those, even more serious issues like where there's been birth trauma or where there's been a pregnancy loss and you know the grief that that goes on if couples know how to communicate and so I've been recommending a book called how to talk so kids will listen and listen so kids will talk which is actually about parenting but it's one of the simplest most clear-cut guidelines to good communication that I've seen in a long time in problem solving and so I, I you know and and, um, and the the Wonder Weeks website you now all these resources that I'm I'm going to be talking Talking about, but also about breastfeeding, so that you know about breastfeeding beforehand, before you actually, um, you know, have to do the thing, and then you know, normalising brain development and brain crying and waking through tonight. So those those are sort of the things that I talk to people. You know, would talk to people about because they were all focused on the birth, of course. You know, coming to the GP and oh, I got a placenta previa and what does that mean and all that. And I tried to kind of sneak in these things. Yes, but then you have a baby. So, so what are the sorts of things that you, you know, like the sorts of ways that you prepare? But Monica, that's the best thing you've said. Well, you've said a lot of really wonderful things that we are so prepared for the birth. We have a birth story. We have a birth. We're prepared for the birth and husbands come in and we, you know, we know how to do all that stuff really well. And when my daughter had her baby recently, her husband was, be- oh, all of them have had beautiful caring partners in their births. It's just been beautiful. And, and oh, look, I've got to tell you, my husband wasn't on one of them. Can I tell you something? A story about one of my babies. Oh, my God. I was in there. It was about number six. So David sort of thought he'd been there, done that. And uh, he was sitting in the room because I'd been induced. I had to have, you know, about six inductions out of the eight. It was a bit revolting. But And they were all different. Not one induction was the same. So there was a bit of... Anyway, he was sitting there and it was a Sunday... Bloody David, feeding him, he was sitting on the chair at the end of the bed and I'd been induced, so contractions were starting to come on pretty hard. And, um, and he looked up from the paper, said, how are you going, love? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, moving along, won't be long now. He goes, yeah, good, good. And then they brought in lunch and I didn't want lunch and it was a roast and I'm like, no, 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 I don't want lunch, thanks, I think I'll throw up if I have lunch. So he said, oh, no, well, I'll have it, sitting there eating his roast. <laughs> anyway, I'm going, oh, God, it's starting. And he said, okay, I'll be there in a minute. And it's like, oh, good on you. <laughs> Anyway, that's just a bit of an aside. But um, so his expectations were being there, done that, you know, off you go, go and have the baby and I'll come down in a minute. You know, I've got the paper to read and I'm having lunch. It stays with you though, doesn't it? And they're the things that do come into your narrative, your life narratives. And I think what I talk to people about is these things. Isn't it interesting that it... You know, when you think about it, but you don't think of birth trauma as like, you know, blood and guts and either you dying or the baby dying or any of those complications. You think traumatic for you is how alone you felt in that moment, how, you know, you're just a baby making mammal rather than a human being going through an experience and still needing support. David, what <laughs> the heck are you doing? That's exactly right. And But then I've kept thinking, how blessed am I that he's there? Because my mother didn't have dad at any of our births. And here am I complaining that he had his roast. But uh, anyway, that's funny. Yeah, but was he really there or 
was he, you know, doing the crossword? I mean, you know, uh, uh, look, I think, um, you know, these things where what touches us and what has meaning to us, you know, when we go through our own experiences, we can look at what's going, like we, when someone says to us, you know, that was really traumatic when that happened to me. And I go, gee, I wouldn't have, and then I kind of remember, you know, yeah, but, you know, we're all individuals. We all experience our transitions, our, what happens to us differently. And isn't it our role to sort of recognize and have that multiple, multiple level? multi-level listening that can actually help us to understand them and to help them feel understood. Um, and I was thinking, you know, when when you were talking about that, I was thinking about various situations where I didn't feel quite understood. And like I have lovely in-laws, like they truly are delightful, but they parented differently. Their advice was different. And so I still remember, you know, a certain degree of tension between me and my mother-in-law um, when my son was really little and he was doing so much crying about the advice that she would give and, and you know, how she saw my parenting. Um, and she was, she was just trying to be helpful. But I think, you know, one of those things about su- accepting support and supporting and accepting help from from family members is that thing that happens about the conflict that happens outside of the couple and how sometimes it can triangulate, you know, that you have a problem with the mother-in-law and so instead of sorting it out with the mother-in-law and using your communication skills, you actually try and get your husband to talk to his mother and that's triangulation and it never works. I can say that from my own experience. Um, and uh, you know what I mean? Like it's it's really terrible until you actually work it out for yourself. Either you decide not to say anything and just accept the love or you decide to say something and say, you know, when you say that, it's really not helpful for me. Um, but I think, you know, all those emotions that we feel, unless we can have people around us, like friends and family members, um, even, you know, the, if you're lucky enough, you know, the local clinic sister who, who supports you, like people who can really listen and say, yeah, you know, it is hard because we might read books, we might watch movies and they're telling us a different thing altogether. Um, you know, advertising, for example, tells us a different thing. And, and even our friends might transition differently through that parenting. So we really need to have our tribe. Yeah, your tribe is so important. But I was just thinking as you were talking that um, one of the things I do with couples when it, they come in, if you're just sort of doing that listening, thinking, yeah, I can hear that there's some, you know, some conflicts or some uh, role confusion or something that might be happening in the transitional period, wherever that'll be. Because I think every time the baby goes through a transition, your parenting goes through a bit of a transition as well as the child grows and develops. But I often go to that person or the couple and ask, you know, what were they like going through puberty? How did they deal with other life's transitions? to actually try and get them to do some here and now, you know, that foregrounding and backgrounding. So was transitioning difficult for you? You know, when you went for high school, do you remember, was it a bit tricky as you took on new roles? Do you remember a time when perhaps this might have been or similar when you changed jobs or roles? Do you find transition difficult to try and get them to see that what's happened to them is not just about having a baby and bringing a baby into the home, but it is about how we deal with change, how we deal with adjustment And I think that sometimes regardless of the age, we can actually clinically just get them to reflect, to say, this is not, you know, I've done it before. I've done transition before, maybe might not have done parenting before, but I actually have coped with change before and to change the focus of their thinking from it's all about the baby and it's all about me and it's all about this urgency of getting it right to 
I remember feeling like that when I was 16 or the year I went to uni or when I went away on um, exchange overseas. How did you do that transition? What worked well? You know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying you know, that, you know, we do use sort of similar skills. You know, we, we have to use our creativity. But it's really interesting because as I was sitting listening to you, I was hearing not just some of my patients in my head but my own head and I'm kind of going, but but all those other times <laughs> it was just about me. This time there's a baby and it's so terrifying. Mm. And I, I think that says something yeah. about me, about, you know, how terrified I was when, even though I am a GP, you know, when I got the, you know, feeling completely and totally responsible and I would behave in some ways and my husband would say, you would think that baby was an orphan and like, you know, sorry, didn't have a father, didn't have anyone else the way, you know, you talk about, you know, if something happens to you that the baby will have no one. Like, he's got me. And I, and I would deliberately sort of have to remind myself, yes, he's got, he's got someone else. He's, it's okay. If I don't get it right, you know, there are other people around. And, you know, that's a really good point because I often say to mothers and to fathers that we both, because we're male and female, and male and females are different, you know, regardless of what we think, we are different. We're genetically, our DNA is different. And so we parent different. And it's not wrong, it's just different. So, you know, the male might do certain parenting things, and I'm not going to use the gender thing, they do the rough and tumble play, some do, some don't, some do the creative stuff and whatever. So however we parent, we parent according to our beliefs, our schemas, our, um, you know, the way we interact with this child. And I think is that other parent reflecting on how that pe- the other one does. So, so just using an example. So, if I watched my David, David's a very um, you know outdoorsy. He's um, you know sort of saw his role with the children. Perhaps when they were little, he was wonderful when they were little. Like he was the guy who gave all the kids and he'd have a shower with four boys. You know, like how delightful. He's, I've got these beautiful photos of naked men in my shower. You know, here's David and all the different. If you could see my hands, I'm doing the descending heights. Yeah. But David would take all the children and, and shower them all and he would love that and be rough and tumble, absolute pigsty of a mess in the bathroom. But they, they talk about showering with dad and bathing with dad and the bubbles and the fish and they'd be fishing and they'd be talking about stuff and they were having a lot of fun, probably doing an awful lot of other boy things as well. But he did it David's way. Now, when I bathed them, it was very different. It was calmer, it was soft, it was gentle. There was a bit of massage involved. There was smooth stuff. I actually put music on. And so we would, we did it differently. It didn't make it right. I remember for a while thinking, bloody hell, David, don't stir them up. They're about to go to bed. Shit. And I'd get cross with him. And then I thought, oh no, he's actually, this is David's way, David's interaction, his way. I have to step back and go, okay, you parent. This is your time to parent, not my time to criticize. And I, it, it's interesting that thing about, appreciating it's about appreciating the gifts that our partners bring and other people bring you know and i um you know when i'm thinking about just it's how empowering it is to be appreciated like to have your gift recognized um you know like my my father-in-law would play with my son you know it's all about trains and my son would so love going and playing with grandpa that would be great and you know my husband you know many things but just how gentle and kind he was and how he could just you know stay really calm in situations where I'd have to go oh, I'm just 
to have to go for a little bit of a walk outside and then I'll come back in. But he would stay really gentle and calm. So it's all that, like sometimes we have to deliberately sit down and go, what am I appreciating about my partner at the moment? Okay, because at the moment I'm only noticing the things that are going wrong. Um, And we do have to deliberately do that. And I... Because now I do psychotherapy full time. The more I do that, the more I recognise how important it is to know ourselves, to actually understand where our stuff comes from, our tendencies, our our quirks, our you know not so good best aspects of ourselves, so that we don't expect other people to be perfect either we don't expect ourselves to be perfect but we can work on our own stuff you know we can do we haven't talked about it but how important self-care is for parents and as a gp i would say you know i'm going to write a script for you and that you actually have to lie down for 10 minutes when the baby lies down that's a script that goes on the fridge. If you don't lie down for 10 minutes when the baby lies down, you're not actually taking your medicine. And it's not just for you, it's for the baby. And, you know, and, and the important self-care of all the things that, you know, we're not going to cover here, but how the priority for that, like you think, oh, no, I have to just be with the children. Not so, because if you're not doing your own self-care, you're not emotionally available for the children, and that's actually not good for anyone and so how important it is to prioritise sleep. That's a really good point, Monica, too. I think some people just need a bit of permission to say, look, you know what? The doctor said, the social worker said, or the, you know, my clinician said, I I have to do. And sometimes it's saying to the other person, either it's the male or the female, that I actually have to do this. I think we've got to be too a bit mindful here in our chats that might, uh, for anyone listening, that it might be very female orientated because I think there's a lot of depression in dads and males Mm. um, or a feeling of misunderstood and and having permission to rest as well. Um, I know my son-in-laws actually get up and do night feeds and my David never did it. He said, why should I get up? You know, you're the one breastfeeding. One of us has got to sleep. Um, so he never got up, but my, my son-in-laws and my sons get up and do night feeds as much as they can. So they're sleep deprived as well. And I think we've got to give the dads, as much as we give, you know, um, the mothers permission to rest when the baby rests, but also to give dads permission to say, well, look, you know, you can ask your, your partner for this. Or even in same sex couples, you know, regardless of the gender makeup or who does what parenting or who does the key, whatever. I think permission giving, and we have that role, I think, if people are saying, I don't know what to do, we can actually quite take a firm stance and say, what I think you might need to do is have permission. You have permission because this is crucial for this reason, you know, the mental health or the psychological development or your stress definitely affects the child. So therefore, this is critical for you. Um, and also it says something to the other person in the relationship about taking time yeah, and it says something to the children as the children are growing up where they where they see their parents looking after, you know, all the adults around them looking after themselves really well so that they can be their best version of themselves and, and, and they see their parents communicating their needs and negotiating their needs and finding out what's going to work for the whole family and it's all of that kind of stuff that, you know, what are we trying to teach our kids here? Okay. Um, do they want, do we want to teach them that, you know, they can feel our resentment or do they want, you know, a parent who is available and who takes time out for themselves in order to benefit the whole family? I think that that's really important. And that's why knowing yourself better in whatever way possible and sometimes having your own counseling, um, can give you that insight and 
that permission and I think that that's where personal counselling can be really helpful that you have that permission for yourself to do this and you can actually see the whole benefit for everyone. Before we finish I'd like to I think I just think one important thing Monica is as as clinicians so you as a referring GP it is about the referral now under Medicare so we get down to the technicals under Medicare someone might have to have a diagnosis of a mental illness. So a lot of people are loathe to go to the doctor and then a lot of doctors might say, well, this is a normal reaction to a life event. It is not a mental illness. You don't meet a diagnostic criteria. You're subclinical. No, I'm not doing a referral for counselling. You don't meet the threshold. And we were talking the other day about how that would actually be perceived. So, you know, and we were talking about adjustment um, you know, just uh, difficulties with adjustment or difficulties with stress. That so we don't have to have a diagnosis of paranoid or psychotic depression. We don't have to have a diagnosis of, of you know, a severe mental illness to be referred for some additional support and counselling. Can I ask you how you sort of feel about that from a, a referring clinician? Um, I'm, I'm surprised that someone will say you don't meet the criteria because, in fact... The, the, the DSM-5 has a criteria that says adjustment disorder and you have adjustment disorder with anxiety and adjustment disorder with depression, but adjustment disorder is a criteria. And you made a good point the other day about anxiety. You know how you talked about anxiety the other day, anxiousness versus an anxiety? Do you want to go into that a bit? I thought that was just brilliant. So the thing is, we whenever we are in a situation where we're either scared or we are angry or we're excited about something, okay, we're going to produce adrenaline. And so in the moment, we're going to feel it as anxiety, especially if we're not really clear why we're feeling that way. I mean, there are some people who, you know, they, they're not really good at recognising their own emotional landscape. And so they'll just feel it like there's a lot of adrenaline floating around in my body. And that's anxiety. That's feeling anxiety and, and anxiousness. But anxiety disorder is where you have lots and lots of adrenaline and you don't know why and you don't know how to manage it. And then that becomes a problem in itself where you get scared and angry at yourself um, for having the adrenaline in the first place. And so that's really what I define as an anxiety disorder. And there are lots of things that sort of go with that in that diagnostic umbrella. But what I'm saying is, is that feeling anxious is a normal part of life and having adrenaline in your body is a normal part of life is a survival thing. But I think that, you know, you can sort of say adjustment disorder. In fact, that's why we're so interested in this this topic of, of all the changes um, that occur in our lives and the sorts of challenges that occur at that particular time that are common to that situation, but also the things that we've learned through our lives and our clinical time that is helpful, you know, that are helpful because transitions and adjustment is actually being human. We're doing it all the time. Yes, the, 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 you know, when we refer if, and the reason why, you know, we're talking about Medicare is because if you go and see the GP and say, this is what's happening in my life and I would like to see a mental health clinician in order to get some money back from Medicare or for the clinician to be paid if they bulk build, um, then it would, you would have to have an item number diagnosis and that would mean that, you know, you'd have to have some sort of diagnosis like that. And adjustment disorder is one. You can use it. Mm, absolutely. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I think that was important to say because, um, you know, there's, um, as I was saying to you about some of my referrals have come, you know, the perinatal anxiety. And as I said to you, you know, you don't, it is an anxious period because it is a time of great transition and adjustment. So we would actually, and anxiety is a fairly normal state. If we weren't anxious, we wouldn't have survived as a species. So I think it's about sometimes normalising and sitting with anxiousness and saying, I am feeling anxious, this is actually okay, rather than slipping down into the shame of, I am bad, I'm bad, I shouldn't be anxious, I should be calm, cool and collected because um, I just think that's unrealistic. I shouldn't be anxious about anything but it's a, quite a natural feeling as you said in the body. Yeah, it's mm. huge stressful. Yeah. You know, you get this new job, it's 24-7, seven days a week and you get no training. Who would do that? <laughs> Can I say, though, I'm so glad I did. But we did I'm it. I'm so glad I did. <laughs> Absolutely. So pleased. That's right. So it's what they say about transitions, their growth. And isn't it interesting, the um, series is called Aging Well. And I think, you know, when we talked about this before, you know, we tend to think aging well, we're t- talking at the end of you know, older age, whereas ageing well is this period of time, regardless of the age we're becoming new parents, welcoming children into our home, then, you know, it is part of ageing. It is part of that growth and um, change that happens through life. And we were thinking we don't want people to think we're just going to talk about, you know, getting old. So that's why we decided. That's why we decided. We just love talking about change and how change affects us as human beings. And so we're going to start calling our sessions transitions. And that's going to free us up to explore all the ways that we react to change throughout our lives. And so I really hope that you can listen to us, to Julian and I, continuing our conversations, both professional and personal, discussing changes through life, our transitions, and I really look forward to sharing this journey with you. Absolutely, and I'm with you too. I've got a great idea for the next podcast too, Monica, so I can't wait. It's going to be wonderful. Oh, sounds good. Okay. It's goodbye from me, Monica Moore, a GP with a special interest in mental health. And goodbye from me, Julianne White. I'm a mental health social worker. Goodbye for now. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 